Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be looking at uh, A Tramp Abroad by by Mark Twain. Uh, This is part of a larger series exploring all the major works uh, by Mark Twain as published in a seven-volume series put together by the Library of America. Um, like a really a cornerstone collection in in that larger uh, collection of wonderful books that I've been um, digging into for for years at this point. So um, yeah, I I you know I hope you uh, can get the same pleasure out of this series as I did if you're a reader and a, and a life a life lifelong reader. Um, so I'm working on a tramp abroad here. And I'm pretty far into it, and I, I really noticed something um, that I really like Mark Twain's travel logs. I, I do enjoy reading them quite a lot. Um, what is difficult for me at times is like finding really what to say about them, and and I've kind of felt this. There's exceptions to this in this series, but um, I think with the novels. It's a little bit easier to maybe maybe discuss discuss the themes because it is more a uh, more a uh, you know th- those books have like a story and they're going somewhere. The travel logs don't always feel that way. You kind of have to a little bit. I don't want to say contrive, but 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 kind of really step back and say like, what is where's Mark Twain in his life and his career at this point? Why did he write about things this way and and you know, and kind of try to think about that. It's not always that clear in the text what he's he's trying to do, uh, at least compared to the novels. And when we compare it to like some of the more political, over political writing we did recently with the Civil War series, where every document like had an agenda or a purpose that, that could be clearly, you know, identified by by even like a, a high school student. Um, with these travel logs, I think they sometimes really do read like, like. Uh, like short nonfiction collections because Mark Twain's method is to like talk about a vignette of something that happened to him and then kind of comment on it, make jokes about it. And then maybe in the next chapter, he'll like reflect on America, even if he's in like Germany, he'll like reflect on an American story. And, you know, it's clear in something like uh, Innocence Abroad, how he's trying to contrast, make fun of America or make fun of Americans, self-deprecate his own culture and his own country by by looking at the manners of Americans abroad. As I talked about in the last episode, I think by the time he's writing A Tramp Abroad, Mark Twain's not really interested in doing that anymore. And maybe his readers were expecting that. The title often presents, it's, it's, it sounds like it's a sequel to Innocence Abroad. He calls it A Tramp Abroad, right? So he's no longer innocent. That's how I kind of concluded last time. He's no longer innocent He's a more mature man. Um, he's and then I talked about what that maturity meant in the in the writing process and his travel process. Right, he's not a tourist anymore, uh, or if he is, he's he's trying to sink his teeth into his his culture. So he's literally walking through Germany, the Alps, and into Italy. I mean, these are long extended walking tours and hiking tours that he's going on. He's not just jumping on a train, going to a place, jumping on a boat, going somewhere else, visiting for a few days and moving on. He's so on some level, he's like forcing himself to to know these cultures. So that's why he writes a 
a 40-page, 30-page uh, reflection on the German language because he's trying to learn German, right? And yes, it's super funny, but it's it's someone really really deeply engaged with the text he's he's encountering abroad uh, on a different more mature level right he's he's a tramp me, meaning he's not like set in one place he's still mobile he's still moving he's still migrating around but he's migrating by foot and that gives him a much more grassroots uh perspective on things and what i think he's trying to do in these next 200 pages i'm looking at basically page 100 to about 200 in a tramp abroad at least one thing that comes up a lot is is folklore and here's where he does uh does like we'll we'll, we'll jump back to american folklore and juxtapose the two and i kind of that's what i want to maybe introduce very briefly to you or maybe talk about for a few minutes is um this is the age of nationalism, right? Uh, the mid-19th century, where nationalism... Of course, nationalism existed prior to this text, but it's, it's much more politically coherent. It's much more of a political project, nationalism, at this point, um, where you have states. You have Italy. You have Germany. You don't have, like... When did was Italy unified when he went there in, in Innocence Abroad? Uh, maybe in the process of it. Germany is, of course, 10 years old as a united country. Um, now, Germany existed for a long time before that as a culture, an identity, a language, a folklore, a tradition. But, of course, when you make the state, then, then comes the process of, of nation building, right? Of what nation building means. Now, some nationalists, of course, will look at this and say, well, we've always been a nation. We were just disunified or broken up. Um, so it's, it's not really a problem problem. But in reality, if you actually look at the record of the historical record and the, the events, yes, it is a problem. It's like we are no country can be lacking like diversity. Right. There's a wonderful book about this called Peasants into Frenchmen, which is about this process in France, where once France, of course, didn't have to go through this process of unification, but in the modern era, in the 19th century, it did have to go through this process of making people think of themselves as French citizens, uh, you know, and embrace, and that involved embracing French culture and defining what that meant. And maybe most importantly, it meant defining what French language is, because they're just like in Spain and just like to maybe do a lesser degree in Germany, there was diverse regional languages and traditions and, and, and folklores and historical consciousnesses that had to undergo, that had to somehow be unified. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do it through various ways, right? We might do it through a historical story. That's what Americans do. They, they create a, a historical narrative that can somehow embrace all the people. Sometimes it really is through a process of cultural unification. You purge those those languages that you want to marginalize you educate people out of it you set up public schools you take the kids just essentially the boarding house experience of american indians was done at large through public education in a lot of these states where people were taken from their culture at home taken from their mother tongue literally in some cases and and, and taught this is proper german this is proper french this is you know, it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of English language in, instruction. And you still have that process going on in many countries. It's still not un, 
controversial what language we teach in public schools and the idea of a national language is still being promoted although now i will say there's more of an effort to secure and save the so-called dying languages but it's a bit like trying to save an endangered species it's like history has already kind of bulldozed over these languages to a degree and we want to preserve them because we find them valuable now but they're never going to be living languages like they were right how many generations does it take to take a, a an active day-to-day spoken language and turn it into and, and and destroy it it doesn't take long you know even people who maybe grew up speaking one language if they're taught they're educated in one language they go to work in a workplace that speaks a national language their newspapers the media they read all is in a national language they're not going to go back to that that tongue and most importantly they're not going to teach their kids their their own mother tongue um or if they do it's 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 marginal like you know, my people were German, right? How long did they speak German? I think no more than two or three generations. That's uh, um, that's part of the process. So we see there there are ways of creating nations. There's not a single way to do it. It's not all primordial eth- ethnic identities that get embedded into a nation. That's probably actually the least common way, in my understanding of it. More commonly, it's like the political realities are established, the political borders are established, and then comes the process of of nation building. Now there are exceptions. There are things like Austria-Hungary, which had to kind of take two ethnicities and say, okay, these are the two core ethnicities of our country: German, Austrian, and and Hungarian, and kind of put them on somewhat equal footing. But that still meant repression of of Serbs or of of Slovenians or Slovakians and Czechs and all these other groups in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, the days of the Asian land empires, which would have multiple ethnicities, is is going away, which is why countries like the Ottoman Empire had to go in a way. They were just too diverse. There were too many competing nationalism, and they had to be broken up along national lines to some degree. And then during and after World War II, World War One, I, I mean, there was ethnic cleansing in the remnants of the, of the Ottoman Empire to make it more Turkish. Right? And this is one of the that was one of the great empires that was able to, to some degree, embrace uh, a multi-ethnic identity, right? Um, having Turks and Arabs and Greeks, different religions, all having a place in the state and the society, all right? Now, of course, pre-modern states couldn't homogenize their culture. They didn't have the tools. They didn't have public schools or policing or, you know, national media cultures and mass literacy, which seems to be what's required to do that. Now, of course, if you study nationalism, you get these arguments like uh, Benedict Anderson says it's really the media, it's it's print capitalism that does it. You have Gellner, who's really focused on the education aspect. You have Eric Hobsbawm, who talks more about the primordial ethnicities establishing themselves. Um, but the overall story is a movement towards ethnic identities. Now, what does it have to do with Mark Twain in this book? Well, it has to do with the fact that there's all this grabbing for for folklore because folklore and language go together folk you know, like language is the conduit for folklore so uh this is something like uh richard wagner seemed to care a lot about this i you know i think he writes about this idea that there's like a german soul a german spirit art should reflect that and where are you going to find that we're going to find it in the folklore and the stories right i'm using for my bumper for this series 
um, Wagner's Lohengrin, partially because Mark Twain mentions it and goes to it and, and is connected to the text that way, but also I think it's an example of of an artist, a modern artist, very nationalist artist, trying to go to a, find his cultural roots in folklore and stories. And that's what you get a lot of here in this uh, this part of the book. And he's, but he's not just reflecting on German folklore and German stories. He also reflects on stories, uh, American stories. Um, and and that's what you get. That's just a lot of the back and forth you get here. So let me just just highlight a few of the things because it is very episodic and it's a lot of vignettes and and. You know they're they're fun to read, but um, but yeah, I'll just mention some of them. Well, um, one German folk tale he focuses a lot lot on is the Lorelei, which is a uh, like a, a German kind of folklore goddess of sorts, but it's tied to uh, Rhine uh, geography. So again, this is something that if you're a tourist, there'd be like. Maybe you would visit this place and and maybe hear the story. Like we saw that in Innocence Abroad, where he would hear stories that would be told to tourists and you just kind of in, you just consume it at that level. But Twain's not doing that. He's looking at the music, this the the the, the poems written about it, the story itself, um, gives different translations, um, different takes on on the legend of, of this water nymph. It's it's almost like one of the I think is it is it tied to like the Rhine maidens that you that you get in the the Ring of the Nibelungen by by Wagner? I, I think it is. Um, so he kind of does that story. He looks at this legend of a spectacular ruin, another German folk tale. A lot of the stuff I didn't really know about. Um, and he even takes his hand at trying to uh, to write his own uh, legend. Um, where is it? The legend of, of some forest, some black, uh, what's it called? Oh, he kind of imagined what it would be to write a German folklore novel, a black forest novel, and he, and he kind of just sketches that out. So he's, he's collecting these stories that he's hearing, and he's looking at them from multiple ways and jotting them down and documenting them. And then he's like, well, what? You know, I'll take my step at, at at exploring it. This is a step above anything you've got in Innocence Abroad, right? It takes longer, of course, and we don't get as much like little quippy little little stories, little there and little jokes. But it's a long process to get to know a culture, and and to try to emulate it is is a level of sophistication that that tourists just can't get um, when they when they visit a visit a place. So um, another thing we have in this section of the book is is a lot about Mark Twain's fascination with antiquing, um, bricker brackery, I think it's called throughout the book, and he does a lot of that kind of stuff, purchasing little knickknacks he finds that he he's able to give some value to, and he actually draws out some of these um, uh, little knickknacks he buys, little porcelains and ceramics and, and 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 things like that he was a collector he was a spender he was a, a good american that way like a like a thomas jefferson liked to buy the foreign goods and and bring them home and and always having money problems 
And eventually this part ends with him moving on to Switzerland. Now, he does, I, I kind of make it sound like he's only walking. It, it's like he spends a lot of time walking in this book. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, he still sometimes travels by rail to get to different places. And, and he ends up going to the Alps. So that's where we're going to go in the next episode. Is the next, well, he's going to go to the, Al, he's going to go to the Alps in Switzerland. Then he's going to cross over to, uh, to Italy for the final parts of this, of this adventure abroad that he goes on. So I don't have too much more to say. I think I was, when I was reading this, I was thinking a lot about nationalism and nationalists' obsession with uh, ancient cultures and folklore. And I just found it really interesting that we have an American folklorist, someone who's so crucial to American ideas about who they are, spending a lot of time, you know, in the early part of the book, he's kind of a little more a little more jokey and having fun with German culture, like the horrible German language and the, the student prisons and the dueling and all that kind of stuff. And it kind of feels elevated to a certain level of seriousness in this part of the book, even though he's talking about like children's tales, essentially, because I think he realizes how powerful these stories are to us, right? And it's at this time, of course, that he's thinking about writing his great American story, Huckleberry Finn. Right, so uh, I sometimes regret not actually mapping this out like I do with the Heinlein series, mapping out like the order of these these texts. It just would have been a lot more time consuming to kind of plan that out. But the, you know, the just how many, I mean, just looking at the interrelation of these texts over time, it might have been might have been a little more valuable, I think. But um, but that's fine. I, I think this will work. This will work as long as we're keep aware of, of, of the timeline. This is like the 1880, the early 1880s, before Huck Finn is written, after Tom Sawyer, when his national prominence has been achieved. Um, and he's got the wealth to kind of tramp around around Europe. But what that gives him, that, that ability to do that, gives him the power to be truly engaged in the, in the land, the soil, the myth. And he's in this own way, he's kind of playing a part in the nation building exercise for better or for worse right i mean there's certainly i'd be the first to criticize the nation building project but I, I still find it a fascinating part of 19th century history is this this seeking out of of an identity for for oneself and, and i think on some level that's what he's trying to to get at, or at least that's what i'm i've been thinking about here so um I guess that's it for now. I, I guess the next two episodes will also be fairly short. I'm guessing I'm going to have more to say about around following the equator just because it is a much more political track. It's much more about the age of empire. This is this is about this is still about Europe and Europeans and, and American identities and and that it's, it's not going to ha it doesn't have the bitterness that I, re I recall following the equator has. So those might give me more opportunities to talk about the history and, and reflect on, on Mark Twain's politics and his anti-imperial critique. But he's not quite there yet in his, you know, that's good. That's a, it's like 15 years after this. So it's a much older man writing that. But I think I'll leave it at that for now. Um, but I don't know. There's, uh, there's, uh, you know, you guys can share what you got out of this book. If you've read it, I, I hope you have. I think it's a, it's a pretty fun read overall. But uh, anyways, uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. <laughs>